0: great to hear your voices. Uh, every once in a while, David likes to just kind of uh, strip things down a little bit to the, the basics, um, and you get into that almost uh, just, just acoustic, not quite a cappella, but almost you know just acoustic worship, and you can just hear the voices so well. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I want to personally thank you for your prayers for last week. I asked you to pray last week for Devin to get his passport in. And wouldn't you know, Devin's passport came in this last week, yes. So we're very excited about that. Uh, We have one more little detail. Uh, Our our youngest member of the trip that was the last one to decide, hey, I think this might be a fun thing. Uh, He had called back last month and said, hey, this situation, they said, you know what, you don't need an appointment, you'll be good, just call us day of, make an appointment. So we called day of this week to go up to Chicago. Anybody ever done that, gone to Chicago to get your passport? Nobody. Oh, well, you can do that. Anyway, uh, but it's got to be within two weeks, and so we called this week, and they said, oh, sorry, we're booked up until the 16th. So guess who's going to Chicago on Friday to go get his passport? uh uh-huh, yes, so pray for Nick. Pray for Nick that he gets his passport and a safe trip to Chicago and back on Friday. Um, he's determined to go, and uh, we've got his ticket waiting on him, so uh, we're, we're excited about that for sure. Here we go. Here we go. This is, for those of you that have been with us the whole time, this is the last week of our study of Luke. Week number 43 of the entire book of Luke. If you just recently joined us, then you didn't know that we started this study back last year on September 26th of last year. Luke investigating the truth, our purpose, the same as the author's, so that you and I may know the certainty of the things that we've been taught. Luke chapter 1, verse 4. Luke was not one of the original 12 disciples. A lot of people think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all disciples. No, Mark and Luke were not disciples of Jesus. He likely met several of the disciples of Jesus. As we studied at the very beginning, back last September 26, it's likely that Luke was converted. He was a convert of Paul's on one of Paul's missionary. Journeys. And Luke was convinced of the truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, but he had this issue. He was an intellectual man, he was a well educated, well studied man, a doctor by trade. So he set out on a fact finding mission to investigate everything having to do with Jesus from the very beginning. He sought out eyewitness accounts to the teachings, the miracles, and the life. Of Jesus, he wanted to put all of these things down in an orderly fashion, and to this day, Luke, this book, is still used as the primary guide to put the events of Jesus's order in life. In uh, Jesus' life, sorry, in order, Luke indicates uniquely that he was writing this letter to a very specific person, a man named Theophilus. I believe that Luke, of course, was inspired by God not just to write it for Theophilus, but For you and for me. And it's really cool to think about that. Let your mind wander just a little bit. Bigger picture, this study of the book of Luke is a part of God's plan for us here at Berea. I very quickly realized, actually, before I ever came to Berea, years before that, I'd been sharing with my student leadership group. I said, one day, I don't know when, one day God is going to move me to a senior leadership position. I know that's going to happen. I just don't know when or where or how. But I told my student leaders years ago, I said, but when that happens, I know God wants me the very first thing to do when I get there. I know he wants me to just study the life of Jesus with them. And, of course, for me, that comes through the Gospel of John, my favorite of the four gospels. This is the account of Jesus' life that was told by literally his best friend on earth. Jesus' very best friend on earth. His perspective, John's perspective, is unique. It's different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it was essential. As we began our time together in the summer of 2018, that this is where God wanted me to start. I had no idea. Or I had no other ideas at all. That's exactly where we were supposed to be. But as we closed that series in the spring, beginning of summer of of 2019, God gave me another idea. You see, Jesus' ministry lasted about three years. And there's a lot of people that say in in the world of ministry, you should plan everything on a three-year basis. Because if you can't get it done in three years... Jesus did three, you get the pattern here, right? Okay, so there's four accounts of Jesus' life, each telling his story from a slightly different perspective and for very different reasons. So what if every three years we dive into the life of Jesus from a new perspective? You see, as believers, we should always be revisiting the life of Jesus as often as possible, to be taught and reminded of everything that he did, the example that he set for us. But as I was thinking about that, another thought popped into my brain, and that was this. We are constantly praying that God will continue to bring us those that do not know him yet. They do not know Jesus yet. Those that are ready to make a decision, possibly, but they don't know a lot about Jesus. So we as the church must consistently be telling them the story, the full story of Jesus's life as they've joined us. They may never have been through an entire gospel together as a church body before. I know that was many of your cases, but when we started, so we did. The treasures that await those that join us as we study a full book, a full account of the life of Christ, they're immeasurable. So God brought me here in 2018. That was John. In 2021, it was Mark. So at some point in the year 2024, we'll be studying Mark together. Okay? So just be ready to put the pencil in your calendars. You don't have a month yet. We'll, we'll see what God does when we get there. But Mark will be the next gospel that we study together in our three-year cycle. All right, so in the course of 12 years, we'll cover all four Gospels. It's a pretty cool, pretty cool thing to get to do together. So here we are. We've walked through this entire book together. From the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus, we covered all the beginning and the end of John's ministry. We looked at Jesus' training as a child, his baptism, and the beginning of his ministry, the choosing of the 12, every miracle that he performed in the book of Luke, we shared with you all the teachings now that Jesus shares with us as a part of his quest to as part of Luke's quest to help us be absolutely certain of the things that we've been taught about Jesus. So today we are left with just a couple just a couple of passages about Jesus's second coming. that's the way we chose to end this series. The rest of the book of Luke we covered earlier on this year around the time of Easter specifically having to do with his death, burial, and resurrection. The theme of Jesus' message in these end times speeches, if you will, these end times teachings is simply two words, be ready. Be ready. We're going to pick up right where we left off a few weeks ago. The Pharisees, the elders, the teachers of the law, we said that week had had given up. They're not going to ask any more questions of Jesus because every time they ask, they walk away In shame because his answers are so stinking good, they can't do anything with it. But there was one more group that had one last final attempt, and that was the Sadducees. This group was at the very, very top of the ladder in Israel. They were the wealthy, influential, the powerful. They made up the religious Jews that consisted of the high priests, the noble class. That was this group. They didn't believe. That any other scripture really mattered other than the writings of Moses, the Torah, the first five works of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If it wasn't in there, it didn't matter to those people. That was it. That was the law to be followed beginning and end. As a result, they did not believe in life after death. They did not believe there was a resurrection of the dead. This life is all we have. There is nothing else. There are no angels, no demons, no supernatural beings, no supernatural things at all. They didn't believe that any of these things were included in the works of Moses. So they must not be true. As you can imagine then, they had a bit of a problem with Jesus. In his teachings. So here is their one last attempt. We're in Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. We'll only be in 20 and 21 today to finish off our study of Luke. Luke 20, verse 27. Some of the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There's your premise. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven all died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. I would hope so. That poor woman, those poor men, that poor family. Oh my goodness, what an awful existence for this. Anyway, now then, verse 33. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were all married to her? Now, their question in their minds is the ultimate gotcha. It's supposed that they actually use this question or something very similar when they would debate and argue with the Pharisees and other teachers of the law because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. They believe in life after death. The Sadducees were trying to discredit the whole concept, the whole idea. Their argument, completely absurd, that's intentional. Basically, they were saying, if we're going to be resurrected, then in that resurrection, we must still have to follow the laws of Moses. There's no exception there. We have to do that, right? If we're going to be resurrected, nothing surpasses the law of Moses in their mind. So, she can't be married to all seven brothers. Jesus' reply, verse 34, The people of this age marry... And are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living for all to him are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said. Well said, teacher. Now, this is a little different for Jesus. He actually specifically answers their question right off the top. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't make them figure it out. He just point blank tells them, here's the truth of what you ask. He directly answers their question. He points out their misunderstanding of Moses's writing, Jesus' first point, the afterlife is different than this life. Now, I'm going to pause there and deviate just for a moment. You must understand that in the Jewish world, the the, uh, teachings of the Pharisees, they believe that the afterlife is just this life part two. That's all it is. It's just an extension. Everything that we know it will exist just better in the afterlife. And so Jesus is actually talking to both groups in his answer. The afterlife is not like this one. We will not marry in heaven. Now, this is a hard concept for us to understand because that's all that we know is this world. It says we will be like the angels. What does that mean? Doesn't mean we're going to look like the angels. Doesn't even really mean we're going to act like the angels. We don't know what the angels look like actually, fully, do we? Now, we do know some of their behaviors for sure because we will mimic some of those things when we're in heaven, but we will be like them. Then we will be eternal beings in the direct presence of our God. Our current constraints of time and location as we know it will not exist anymore. Death will not exist anymore. And this is maybe the most important thing. We will never, ever, ever be alone in any way ever again. If you remember back to the very beginning of mankind, the purpose in creating Eve was for Adam to not be alone, because it is not good for man to be alone. In the presence of our Savior, we will never, ever be alone ever again. Jesus has never said we wouldn't recognize our husband or wife or friends and family in heaven Never did he say that I think we can pretty much assure that we will As a matter of fact, it seems we're going to recognize a lot of people that we don't really even know yet Jesus is always talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob It seems like everybody knows who they are I don't know what they look like, do you? But somehow we will I don't know if they have name tags You know, I don't know how exactly that will work But Jesus is always bringing them up. So something tells me we're going to be able to recognize one another. On earth, the primary purpose for men and women coming together is that process called procreation. Bringing new life to this earth. Keeping the human race going, right? That was the design from the beginning. And now, we humans unfortunately have altered (laughs) that original plan in some very terrible ways. But the basic truth still remains. And that function of repopulation will not exist or need to exist within heaven. There is no death. We must also remember that we will have new bodies. You can probably read a hundred books telling you about this new body that you'll receive. I can't tell you what that new body will look like, nor can anyone else. Lots of guesses for sure. And we all probably have an idea of what we want that new body to look like, right? But we don't really know what that means. Things will be so different and so much better. I love Paul's description. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind can conceive. Now, we can conceive some incredible, amazing things, but heaven is so far beyond that. The things God has prepared for those who love him, 1 Corinthians 2.9. So literally, all we can do is dream. And all I can tell you is simply this, there is no possible way there will be any element whatsoever in all of heaven that is a disappointment. It's not like earth, where even the best thing still has a bad side to it. And Jesus finishes his answer here by correcting their interpretation of the scripture that they hold up as the truth, the works of Moses, where they get all of their laws. They believe that is all that there is to scripture. Moses speaks to God through this burning bush. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed. Every one of those religious leaders knew that story very, very well. Moses says that his God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And by doing so, he's declaring that they are alive with God. And since God is the son, since this, then his God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Luke, Luke records an interesting little throw-off line there at the end. The teachers of the law responded with, well, well said. Now, it doesn't record who that group of teachers is. It could be the Sadducees. He just used the different language. Maybe the Sadducees, they they, they didn't record their response, but this was actually it. But it's also possible that some of the teachers of the law, not the Sadducees, had stuck around because they heard the question that Jesus was being asked, and they had been asked the same question by the same group of people. Remember, the Sadducees were always trying to trick people with this question, and they wanted to hear Jesus' answer. (laughs) I want ammunition too. Tell me the answer, Jesus, so the next time they confront me, I can share that with them as well. That's it. No more questions from people, from the leaders, from Jesus. No more questions at all, at least not until the cover of darkness sets in and they'd be questioning him before his trial later on that week. And so here we are. For those of you baseball enthusiasts, we are now rounding third. We're heading toward home with the last passage from the book of Luke together. In this final teaching, Jesus combines two different things. One that is directly pertaining to the people he's talking to, the audience, the the people standing there listening. And a second element that is for us. Everyone past that generation of people, as we'll learn. So you're going to turn, probably not even the page, chapter 21, verse 5, is where we'll be to finish up this last teaching of Jesus on the end times. 21, verse 5. Some of the disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. They were just standing there marveling outside the city, just looking at its beauty. And Jesus said, verse 6, oh, hey, that temple. Yeah. As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Talk about a downer right? You're hanging out with Jesus. You're excited. He's come to the temple. He had this, or you come to the city. He had this triumphant entry just a few days ago. He's doing all these spectacular teachings. You're just marveling at this temple, which you assume is probably going to be your throne one day, whenever Jesus takes over. And Jesus is like, yeah, it's pretty awesome, but you know what? <laughs> it's soon going to be completely destroyed, now, what we can't, we, we can't understand what the temple looked like. We can look at pictures and models and all those things, but mentally we can't grasp it because of its setting and where, where, where you actually would have seen it. Uh, the temple mount, it's it set up on a hill. The city of Jerusalem sets up on a hill, and then the temple mount within the city of Jerusalem sets up on a, a hill. And if you see aerial pictures of Jerusalem today, you can see what's left of that western wall, and you see the, the temple of the Dome of the Rock, the, the Muslim temple that is there in that same region now, it's the exact same place. You can see that from a great great distance. As you approach Jerusalem, the temple was different. Its walls were white. Imagine how white walls would have stood out against the rock background, the mountainous background, the brown background, the scenery of the day, the landscape. It's said to have been plated with gold plates in all kinds of places all over. Imagine the sun reflecting off a white building plated with gold. Just imagine what that would look like. Like, say, we, we don't have anything like this in the world, quite honestly, today. And then it had these huge white pillars supporting the structure. Again, you could see these from a great distance because it's set up on a hill. This building literally just glowed where it was. It was spread over a course of about 10 football fields in area. It was huge. It was enormous. And this was the pride of the Jewish faith, something that every follower identified with. And now Jesus says, yeah, that, that whole thing, that, that, that's going to be destroyed. Now, you can imagine it probably didn't take long for them to respond. Uh, teacher, when 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 is this going to happen? And what will the sign be that these things are about to take place? Did, did you just say that basically all we know is our entire existence is going to be completely destroyed? Um, when's that going to happen, Jesus? How do we get ready? How do we know that that's going to happen to us? As I looked and began to prepare this message several weeks ago, every commentary, every reviewer basically said the same thing, that this segment of passages are some of the hardest to interpret in all of the New Testament. Jesus, is he just talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, or is he talking about his second coming? It's been debated forever, so as we read these words of Jesus together, we got to realize two things. First, first we have to realize that he's speaking about both events, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the end times. And furthermore, we need to understand that he bounces back and forth between both of them as they're recorded in Luke. Now, Luke didn't have a transcript of the conversation. So we don't know how Luke got this information, who Luke got this information from, but Jesus switches back and forth. We must also realize that for the disciples... The point in time that would come whenever the city of Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed, how on earth could they differentiate that from the end of the world? To them, that is the end of the world, at least their world, as they know it. So in their minds, there was no difference. Jesus was to help them realize that one of these events was actually on the horizon. In fact, it would happen fairly soon, and the other is yet to come. The second thing that we must do is something you always need to do in Scripture when you're studying it and you have a question like this, is you've got to compare it alongside Jesus' other teachings on the exact same event. Jesus, in the book of Luke alone, in chapters 13, 19, and 20, talk about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And in chapters 12, 17, and 19, he talks about his second coming. So, whatever Jesus says in chapter 21, it has to be related to the other things he's already said. They got to make sense all together as if they were one teachings. On all other occasions, Jesus speaks about these two events Jerusalem destroyed, his second coming, as separate events. Most importantly, Jesus continually warns us that his second coming will occur without any signs. It will come as if a thief in the night with no warning. Now, that's a lot different than the Roman army coming to surround your city and ultimately tear it completely down in a siege that lasted four months in the year AD 70, isn't it? So let's read together these passages. We're in verse 8. Verse 8 is where we will be. Jesus replied, Watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming, I am he. The time is near. Do not follow them. Now, this is a warning we've already heard multiple times in Jesus' teachings. It's simple. Don't be deceived. There will always be those trying to deceive the followers of Jesus. Don't believe them. Don't believe those claiming to be the Messiah. Because when he returns, everyone will know it, and he won't be in secret in hiding. There will be no mystery to figure out or solve. It will be obvious to everyone. Now, throughout history, people have been deceived, by these people and these predictions. Some of these false teachers, as some of you might remember, have led people specifically even to their death. Numerous cults have been formed based on people claiming to know the time and the place that Jesus was going to return. Anytime that happens, you can immediately mark that off as don't believe them. Jesus was very specific. Don't believe them. Verse 9, when you hear of wars and uprisings, don't be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, pestilences in various places, and fearful events, and great signs from heaven. Now, hearing of wars, this could be both. Because in Jesus' time, he could have been addressing his immediate audience. The near future, there would be all kinds of wars and rumors of wars all around Israel as Israel rebelled against Rome. Rome was constantly having to send troops to that area to put down uprisings, not just of the Jews, but of all the people in that region. You see, some things never change. Same thing's happening today. There would have been a constant threat of war in that region just like today. Jesus' words could also be related to a second coming. These dangerous times, he says, don't be frightened. Global disasters that Jesus lists lists here. Earthquakes, famines, pestilences, plagues, epidemics, diseases, dare I say, viruses. Ah. These signs are going to occur, folks. Historians could certainly point to all of those signs existing around the time of after Jesus' death and the time of Jerusalem falling as the church began to grow. There were earthquakes recorded in Jerusalem literally before the Romans destroyed it. Of course, today, we have all of these signs as well. In the Bible, it talks about an axe, famines that existed across the land, one of the signs Jesus was pointing to back then. In some ways, many of these signs that Jesus listed have now been in place since he listed them. And Jesus tells us at the end of that don't assume that the end is near. Keep our theme in mind. Are the signs what matter most? No. No, not at all. Signs or no signs, the question is are you ready? Are you ready? Verse 12. But before all this, they will seize you, persecute you, hand you over to the synagogues, and put you in prison. You'll be brought before kings and governors on the account of my name. And also you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you the words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed, even by parents, brothers, sisters, relatives, and friends. And they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Now, at this point, you can hear some words in there that probably help you realize Jesus is talking to a very specific group of people here and his followers. He's laying out literally what's going to happen to them. We see all of these things unfold in the book of Acts after Jesus ascends to heaven and before Jerusalem is destroyed for the most part in A.D. seventy. We can see all of these things happen. The early Christians are persecuted. They are imprisoned. We read about them being brought before religious leaders, before the synagogue. We see them before Roman leaders. We see people like Peter, Paul, and John standing before these rulers, sharing their very own testimony, sharing the truth of Jesus with who they are, whoever is in front of them. We see them speaking in ways that confuse The leaders, because the leaders listening go, now wait, aren't these uneducated, unwise? Aren't these just basic, everyday, normal people? How can they speak so boldly? That most famous example is I think Acts 4, Peter, John, before the Sanhedrin. They spoke so boldly that even though they were unschooled ordinary men, the only explanation to those listening was that he, they, were with Jesus. He alone provides the words that they were using. And I believe he still can do that and does that Today. So it's for a both and kind of category. Jesus was so bold, he tells them some of you will be put to death because of me. Guys, that's just how it's going to be. Hatred is going to come from everywhere, even those closest to you. Church, do you see our society trending in that direction once again? All of the division, all of the anger, all of the animosity, even when you're just trying to love people. Then Jesus gives them even more insight as to what will soon happen in Jerusalem. Verse 20, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, I think he's pretty specific here, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. Let those in the country not enter the city, for this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. (laughs) Jesus is once again very specifically here predicting what is coming as a result of Israel's rejection of God and of him as the Messiah, Jerusalem and the temple completely destroyed. They'll be surrounded on all sides. When you see these things, he says, get out of town, head for the hills. Jesus' description is horrific. And if you read the historical accounts of that period and specifically that event, they might even be worse than Jesus' description. It was terrible because not only did people not heed Jesus' warning, but as the Roman army approached Jerusalem, guess what everyone did? They ran into the city for shelter, for protection. They didn't flee the city as Jesus asked them to do. And as a result, literally probably hundreds of thousands, some estimate even more were murdered, killed, and worse. Because of this event, he tried to tell them. Jesus then continues on into these signs, but now he's back to his second coming. The desolation of Jerusalem was an event that was predicted a long, long, long time ago. And once that event took place, Listen very carefully. Once Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was torn down. At that moment, the door was then opened for Jesus' second coming. It could not happen before that prophecy was fulfilled. So literally, at any time after this event, Jesus could return. It was the beginning of the end as we know it. And he continues, verse 25, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars on the earth. Nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Have you heard of a tsunami? People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming in the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with the power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Verse 29, he told them this short parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees when they sprout leaves. You can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. The parable is Jesus just reminding his followers to pay attention, Pay attention to the times, be able to discern the times, just like he challenged them last week in Luke 12, 54. The events to come are worldwide events, things that will be seen by everyone, much like the descriptions in the book of Revelation. Now, these events, they absolutely will be terrifying for many. But look at what Jesus tells his followers to do in these times. Stand up. Lift up your head and be ready, cause it's about time. Don't be fearful. Don't worry. Be ready, church. These last three years, way too many people in the body of Christ and the family of God. Way too many people that claim to be believers were uh, afraid. Don't be afraid. Be ready. There's a big difference between those two. Then there's the most debated verse of the entire passage, verse 32. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, if you just look at that verse completely out of context and nothing else knowing about Jesus, it appears Jesus is telling all of his followers that he will return Sometime within their lifetime. That he's definitely coming back within this generation. However, nowhere else in all of Luke's writings or the other gospels is such is an indication that Jesus' return would be so quickly to happen, that it would be so immediate. So the most likely explanation, as well as the one that fully allows Jesus' reference to be true, when he says this generation, he's talking to a very specific group of people. Now, you can read commentaries that, well, he meant this generation of believers from the time he ascends till, till the time he comes. I think he's talking about this generation. I really do. He, he, Jesus is pretty specific here. To be very, for all this to be correct and all of this to be accurate, here's what Jesus did. He's just shifted back to answering the original question. The disciples specifically asked, when will Jerusalem be destroyed? When will the temple be destroyed? And now Jesus is telling them, that's all going to happen before this generation has passed away, which absolutely proved to be true. His ascension into heaven took place in AD 30, and the destruction of the temple was in AD 70, near the end of that generation that Jesus was specifically talking to These last few verses, simply our final reminder to be ready. Verse 34, be careful, be careful. Believer, be careful in this world or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap for will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on watch. Be ready and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you May be able to stand before the Son of Man. And each day Jesus was teaching at the temple. And each evening he went out to spend the night on a hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. This final passage and these final teachings of Jesus remind me very specifically of a parable he told earlier Luke chapter 8. The parable of the soils. The first soil was, was the seed that was just dropped along the path. It got trampled and it got eaten up by birds. The second one was rocky. And the word of God, the seed, the word of God was planted and it grew up very quickly, but then it was choked out. But then the third soil, that's what we're talking to. This is the soil that was good soil. Was, the seeds were firmly planted in, but, but the plants, once they began to grow, were choked out by life's worries, by life's riches, and life's pleasures. Jesus is warning them, do not get distracted by the things of this life. Do not let them wear on you. How many of you are tired right now? Are you tired because you're worried about the second coming of Jesus? Are you tired about all the distractions of life that are literally physically wearing you out? Don't let them do that. I've challenged you the last two weeks. I challenge you again today. Think often. I say daily about Jesus' second coming and be ready. The anxieties, the fears of this world, they will keep you from maturing in your faith. They will stunt your growth because you'll be worried about that. The world will allow you to use the vice of busyness to keep you from coming to places like this even, to keep you from studying, to keep you from praying, to keep you from being an example, to keep you from reaching out to those around you. It will keep you from forming relationships with fellow believers because you're busy, you got things to do. It will keep you from serving, from meeting the needs of others because you know what? You're just too busy trying to satisfy your own wants and desires. And Jesus tells us to be careful whole. There's a lot of believers, ah, I don't care. Is it possible to be careful and not care at the same time? No. <laughs> no, the words of Jesus, be careful in this life. The things of this world are tempting. They will distract us. They will confuse us. They will deceive us. And we are called to always be ready. Believer, are you Ready? Are you striving to enter through the narrow door? Are you striving to stay on the narrow path? Do we daily think about the second coming of Jesus? And when you think about it, are you afraid or are you excited? Which one is it? Are you excited? And then are you excited to go try to reach others to have them join you? Is your heart breaking right now for those that do not know Jesus yet? If you can get through a day without having one thought about people going to hell then I don't think you've thought about the second coming of Jesus on that day. It should break our hearts as believers. Pre-believer, because we believe there are people watching in this room and online today that have not made a decision for Jesus. I have a very honest question to ask you. Are you ready? Are you ready? Do you know how much Jesus loves you? Are you aware that he came to this world and willingly died to take a punishment that you and I deserve for all the mistakes that we have and will ultimately make so that you and I could be forgiven and that we could live this life, guilt-free, shame-free, while the world tries to crush us with guilt and shame. Are you aware, pre-believer, that he died so you could have an opportunity to spend eternity with him in a perfect place called heaven, that actually he's preparing a place specifically for you should you decide To call upon him, accept his love and accept him as your Lord and your Savior. Free believer, believer alike. Are you ready to meet Jesus today? If he came back today or he called you home today, are you ready? He's been patient with you, he's given you today actually, to respond. Did you know today is the day of salvation, according to Scripture? Not tomorrow, not next week, not next. Today is the day of salvation. Will you respond? Will you repent and come to Him today? With that, we've concluded the recordings of Luke, of the life of Jesus. Thank you. And please respond to the Spirit in your life. Father God, as we give people an opportunity to respond. That opportunity isn't just for this moment in this part of the service. That opportunity is for every moment of every day. But Father, your Spirit clearly plants in us desires, thoughts, minds. He wants us to respond in moments like these as well. As we close up these teachings from the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, a man that set out in an attempt to put together a recording of your son's life. Here we are 2,000 years later, and that recording is just as accurate. It's just as true. It's been tried to be disproved so many times, and yet everyone that digs in deep enough finds there's way more truth than they could ever hope to try to disprove. We thank you for your word. We thank you for opening our minds to the ability to understand your teachings, and apply them to our lives. But Father, we didn't get called to this room to sit here. We didn't get called to our TVs or computers or phones today to just sit and watch the words of Luke be spoken, the words of Jesus be recited. But Father, you called us to this place to respond to those words. And our prayer is that everyone that hears these words is ready or has a desire to become ready, to be right with you, to repent of their sins, to be baptized, to walk a new life in this world before we get to spend eternity with you in the perfect next. Father, move amongst your people today. Break their hearts for the things that break yours. Get them right with you. You're the only, your spirit is the only thing that can move people into a right relationship with you. We don't want anyone to be left behind. We don't want anyone to perish, nor do you. And that's why we've gathered. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name.